You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Dr. Andrew Stone. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Stone. Uh, I've had a conversation with him in the past, uh, but post-COVID, responding to some of the commentary that people have put to me about the need to consider where to now and what it all means, I thought, as he's such a respected economist, that he would be the ideal person to help us unpack some of the uncertainties that are coming at us in as much as we're able to consider them. He's had extensive experience. He had five years at the Commonwealth Treasury, uh, some 10 years or so at the Reserve Bank of Australia. He worked for some five years as Chief Economist and Advisor to Tony Abbott, including when he was Prime Minister. Brings a great deal of understanding uh, to the situation and can help us, I think, prepare a little uh, for what might be coming in these very uncertain times. So, Andrew, terrific to have you with us again. Thank you, John. Great pleasure to be here. And to kick off, it feels like we could almost now talk about uh, uh, BC and AC, before COVID and after COVID. To set the context a bit, it seems to me that even before COVID, there were some really quite worrying economic trends emerging globally and indeed in Australia. So I'd just be interested in a bit of an overview from you as to what you think COVID has done to what was already a slightly worrying situation. Sure. Um, I suppose actually I would begin with a comment that I wish I could believe or to be as confident as you that we are approaching the after COVID stage. I say that not because I think that we should still be worrying about the virus and, and implementing the sort of extreme measures that have been taken here and even much more so around the world. But I, I'm not at all convinced even so that we are moving necessarily, certainly globally, into a post-COVID state because I think that unfortunately a lot of governments and a lot of politicians and a lot of bureaucrats have discovered that having this virus has granted them extreme and arbitrary powers and they don't like to give them up. So I think that we may well still be some time before we can get back to any sense of normality, which I take to mean the sort of rights and freedoms and so forth that we had and sort of behaviour that we had before the uh, pandemic came along. That said, I think you're correct that even before the pandemic, there were a lot of things about the economy globally and in Australia that were not, you know, that, that were somewhat worrying, uh, not nearly to the degree that there are now, but um, you know, there, there were certain economies. The US economy pre-COVID was performing extremely strongly. Actually, unemployment rate was very low. You'd had the best uh, wage growth, for, particularly for people on, you know, on lower wages that you'd seen, the best real wage growth in several decades. Uh, so there was, it was quite solid performance by Main Street American, the Main Street American economy. And in Australia, we were performing solidly but unspectacularly. So particularly in terms of GDP per capita, uh, we were not doing terribly well. We haven't been doing terribly well for a while, but at least we were performing solidly. And uh, in terms of the fiscal performance of the government, we basically got ourselves back to balance. Uh, unfortunately, all of that, so much of that has changed both here and globally. And... Uh, although many economies are now ex exhibiting fairly strong growth or exhibiting fairly strong growth in the first half of this year, uh, they're doing so on the basis of torrents of free money, torrents of money just being printed by central banks around the world. Now, this was one of the weaknesses that we already had prior to that. Even in Australia, our overnight cash rate was down to 75 basis points, an unprecedentedly low, unprecedentedly low level. Uh, even before the virus struck, now we're down effectively at zero and we're running quantitative easing, effectively, effectively printing money. We don't call it that, but effectively printing money. And if we're doing that here, they're doing it on a much larger scale than many other parts of the world have been doing so. So the idea that we've managed to eke out some sort of recovery, uh, but with this vast amount of, as it were, funny money being thrown at the problem to effectively defer the resolution of it uh, uh, is, is grounds for concern. And those concerns are compounded by the fact that already many of the major economies seem to be slowing again just this morning, we had the, the preliminary third quarter GDP data for the United States, which was a large miss on the downside. So there was growth. There was half a percent growth in the quarter. But all the market economists and various the Federal Reserve Banks have been predicting one and a half percent growth in the quarter. So this is viewed as a significant miss. And at the same time, you have the highest inflation rates uh, that the US has been recording in many decades, you know, the highest inflation rates in Canada as well in, in 20 years. Uh, so there are, there are various worrying signs that uh, we've, we've simply managed to postpone some, some very bad downsides and that, that, that there's an enormous amount still to be resolved uh, of the problems that the virus and the pre-virus imbalances in the economy throw up. So we'll explore a lot of these issues as we go along, but one I'd like to pick you up on there is that I've always thought that inflation um, 
is a great danger when it comes to rising interest rates with high, very high levels of public sector debt, all right, written out for 10 years on bonds and so forth in many cases, uh, uh, private sector debt, corporate debt. The last thing we need is a surge in interest rates. And yet, anecdotally, there's so much talk about inflation being much higher than the official figures say. I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, an identical motor that cost us on our farm 3,400 last year, just 11 months on, a replacement cost uh, $1,000 more, a full thousand more. That's dramatic inflation. Surely the great risk here is quite savage inflation and a real mess on interest rates. That, that is a serious risk. I mean, part of the issue here is the measurement of inflation and which inflation measure is being looked at. So when people say, oh, inflation is 3% as it is now, it has spiked up to 3.8%, nearly 4% in Australia. It's now back down. Some recent inflation data over the year to the September quarter is back down to 3%. That's still considerably higher than it has been, but actually that's not, you know, it's to the top of the Reserve Bank's target band, but that's not a, not a bad thing. It's been well below the target band for a little while. Um, but part of the issue there is, first of all, that's very narrowly focused. That's on a, on a basket of consumer goods, the sorts of things, you know, your bread and milk and cheese, and there are elements of other components of the things that you spend money on, so your rent and all those sorts of things. But it does miss all sorts of other prices, particularly asset prices. Mm. And in addition, there have been very wild swings and are likely to be many more wild swings in relative prices. So you can have a situation where certain things are getting uh, a lot cheaper, but certain key things for production, such as the engine that you're talking about, might be getting a great deal more expensive, or indeed here in Australia and elsewhere around the world, it's getting, you know, being able to get a new car, it's not quite as rare as hen's teeth, but it's, you know, it's, uh, there was, a, for example, in the US GDP data, a huge fall in purchases of cars because production has declined hugely because there's a you know, global chip shortage. And nowadays we, we don't build cars just to, to move around. You've got to have a, have a chip in there. Lots of, uh, chips, lots of chips in there. Partly, very sophisticated. It's very sophisticated, partly, in fact, to collect all sorts of data on you as the driver, which can then be sold. Uh, so, so there are lots of relative price swings, but also, as I say, the key point is that consumer price measure, that is very important. Don't, don't misunderstand me to say we should downweight the importance of consumer prices, but it's very far from the only thing we should worry about with inflation. And for example, if you look at house prices, and this is something, again, we may talk about later, we have a situation where, so consumer prices have gone up by 3%, but just in the last quarter alone in Sydney, house prices have gone up by 9%. Dwelling prices have gone up, you know, if you count houses and, and units, by 7%. Over the last year, they've gone up by 17%. Mm. And now, these are astronomical figures, especially when you think this is through a period where the economy has been weak. We in Australia have barely got back above the sort of level of output, quarterly output, annual output that we were at before the pandemic struck. Normally, a period of such weakness would be a period in which we didn't have strong uh, demand for houses, but actually, and, and therefore big rises in price. But actually, we've seen these astronomical rises, and that's in turn, creating all sorts of flow and effects, in particular flow and effects in relation to inequality. We've effectively seen a massive wealth transfer from Australians without housing, without who don't own a house, to those who do. Which is young people, yes. essentially. And then that flows into interest rates. You're talking about interest rates. The trouble is then you get, there, there's no good way out of this sort of situation. Either you keep interest rates incredibly low, but then you have this weird situation where you are you're massively transferring wealth within the economy. In particular, you're transferring wealth from generally, by and large, from people younger and without so much wealth to people older and with more wealth and for no good reason. Mm -hmm. I don't mind if people earn their wealth, but there's no good reason why because I own a house, I should suddenly be $500,000 or $100,000 richer. On the other hand, if you raise interest rates, I mean, I think the Reserve Bank, I'll say bluntly, have made some serious policy mistakes and should start gradually raising interest rates. But you can't raise them fast at the moment because people have borrowed so much, households, and also now the government has borrowed so much. So actually, we have a situation also where the Reserve Bank, it can we can carry on as though it's independent, but it's, it will be having a very close eye over its shoulder now to what the government thinks, mm -hmm. because the government's taken on so much additional debt, it will be very damaging to the budget, very damaging to public impressions, very damaging to people's view of what's going to happen to taxes if they start raising interest rates too much. Mm -hmm. So they're caught in this terrible bind, a bind that's partly of their own making. This, this underlines, and, and you understand this because you're the author of a very important book, in my view, Restoring Hope, Practical Policies to Revitalise the Australian Economy. Good economic policy is good social policy, mm. and people forget that. Running a good economy is about good outcomes for people. Yeah. It's not for the sake of a sweet set of numbers yeah. that look impressive, but it doesn't stop people in these times. This is something that you see right down through history. 
trying to reinvent the wheel. And we hear a bit about the so-called COVID-19, the Great Reset, uh, Claus Schwab has written a book. Uh, uh, he's a founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. And there's this sort of attempt to rewrite the rules and say it's going to be different from now on. Hmm. I'm not sure I buy that. I, yeah, I, I take an even... I, what is I the Great Reset <laughs> and, and, and why is it a bit myopic? Well, I take a much darker view, I confess, even again, than that, that, that it just that it won't work or whatever. Klaus Schwab is the head of and founder of the World Economic Forum, and he runs this Davos group that everybody, you know, so, so much media commentary is so enamored of, um, who have been talking for a long time about this so-called um, Great Reset, and the idea is to reinvent capitalism so it's much more focused on good social outcomes and sort of have stakeholder capitalism rather than shareholder capitalism and so forth. Well. You'll have to forgive me if I say that the idea of having billionaires, by and large, almost exclusively billionaires, who fly into a, a gathering and meet you know, in the secretive gatherings in Switzerland and then wish to tell me how they're going to reinvent the world for me, but it's all for my own good. Well, I think people ought to run a million miles from that. But also, it's, it's profoundly silly, so much of the discussion. Um, and, and that's one of the weird things about the, the moment we live in now, that we are being lectured by CEOs and boards of multi, multi, multi-billion dollar companies about social responsibility uh, at the same time as every um, I, I, many deeply evil cause that they have, have tacked onto, latched onto. You know, they're, they're happy to, for example, promote the Black Lives Matter movement and um, they're happy to promote the idea that diversity is uh, a tremendous thing that we all need to get on board with and that, they, and that corporations will now promote this to the point where we now openly talk about how positions should be decided on the basis of race. Now, I find that a profoundly offensive idea. The idea that any consideration should be given to whether someone's black or white or whatever, but that's one of the central tenets of the sorts of stuff that Klaus Schwab and, and people in the World Economic Forum uh, are talking about. The idea in general that, that we should have a society and cities and general polity that's being, that's being re-engineered by big tech corporations and big corporations you can put a, try to put a positive spin on this, but this is absolutely taking us back to the idea of the corporate state. And this is the fusion between government, large corporations, and often as well, uh, large unions, large, large workers' organisations. And it's a terribly, terribly anti-democratic thing. It's the idea that somehow these people, many of whom never follow the rules that they are proselytising about for, for the rest of us, should get to determine you know, what's good for us and, and, and be the agenda setters uh, along with their partners in government. Um, so as I say, you'll, you'll discover from that that I have a very dark view of Mr. Schwab. I used to, I used to actually have a, a view of the World Economic Forum as something of a uh, sort of comical, uh, somewhat comical view of them in the sense that it always struck me as an odd thing that there would be all these business leaders who'd, who'd, who felt desperately they wanted to be invited to Davos because somehow it was such a matter of boasting. You used to think if you're a big CEO, and what, why do you care that everybody gets to know you've been to Davos? Why is it such, why, why are you so insecure that you sort of want it to be um, you know, known by everybody that you've been, you've been got, got an invitation to this exclusive place? Well, uh, I don't think it's a joke anymore uh, because I suspect there's been a great deal more um, insidious uh, carry-on between governments around the world and many of these business leaders that is not, does not portend good things for democracy properly understood as an attempt to... to have people be able to be governed in the way that they choose to be governed. I, sh I share your concerns that very often these people are quite profoundly anti-democratic. They don't believe the people in the street can make the right and best decisions about their own lives. They think you know, a, a sort of um, expertocracy is needed to tell them what's good for them. That's the beginning of authoritarianism in one guise or another. Absolutely, and unfortunately, we are well along the way towards that, particularly being enabled by big tech corporations uh, around the world. And it's it's very worrying to me on two grounds. First of all, because it is just profoundly wrong. It is nobody else's business to be running around telling the people that they have they they, they disappoint the experts, they disappoint the government, and it's time that they you know shaped up and did what they were told. It's none of the business. That's that is a profoundly undemocratic sentiment. But on top of that, you have the point that someone like you know, Professor Glenn Reynolds, the, the um, Instapundit blogger in America, has often um, often remarks upon the fact that it's a shame also that our so-called elite is so unelite 
that so many of the people who have set themselves up as these great experts are hopelessly unqualified to be doing the jobs that they're doing. And it shows in the disastrous outcomes that they engineer. But, but in so much of life these days, an engineering a disaster is just the step on the road to being promoted to engineer the next disaster. So unfortunately, um, it doesn't, there's, there's so little accountability now as well in our democratic systems. And that's another thing that we desperately need to get back. Yeah, well, I just feel really concerned that people in the street feel uh, sidelined and dispossessed and frustrated about what to do and what all this means. So to tease all of that out, we, to return to this question of exploding debt and who's paying for what, um, the uh, 2021 Australian budget handed down in May revealed that the cost to the public sector, the federal government, which, but that's us, that's taxpayers and particularly tomorrow's taxpayers, was around 311 billion. That's a lot of money. You've then got to add the state spending to that as well. You've had a huge increase in public sector debt. Um, it's worth just asking this question. I think uh, non-economists, the people in the street, often ask the very pertinent question: um, Where's that money coming from? How have we financed our response to COVID? And where does that leave the state of public finances in Australia? And indeed, given that we're not alone, you know, we've spent proportionately probably more than most other countries on this. We've kept more people alive too, but we have spent an incredible amount of money. Where's it coming from? That's the people in the street often ask that. Who do we owe this money to and what does it mean? Yeah. Well, it, it's all been borrowed. So um, as you say, it's you know, $300 billion at the federal level, more, much more, you know, Estimates from earlier this year were about $600 billion, close to $600 billion in total, borrowed at the public sector level over the pre preceding uh, year or so, or out and, and out into the future, the expected um, cost. Now, uh, that's just federal. No, no, that's so that's federal and state. The state federal and state. The, public so, sector. so total public sector. Yeah, public but as sector. you say, we, are, we the taxpayers are on the hook for all mm. of that. So where the money has come from is it's just all been borrowed. In part, it's been borrowed by the Reserve Bank. <laughs> Uh, just effectively, as I say, effectively printing money and then lending it to the government. The government is supposed to repay the, the Reserve Bank, but this is effectively just printing money. Uh, but it's also been a lot of it borrowed from, from people domestically or from people uh, overseas, and therefore that all has to be repaid. And effectively, Australia's um, Commonwealth debt, uh, net debt, will double from what was already, we had already just hit a record level for the period since, at least since 1970. So actually, really for the period going back to the immediate post-war period, we just hit a record level, but we uh, are just under 20% of GDP, um, you know, one year's total output. Uh, but we were, at least we'd stabilised that and we managed to get the budget back into balance. And then we've suddenly, now we've suddenly spent these hundreds of billions of dollars extra and our net debt will rise to 40% of GDP or over 40% of GDP, which is unprecedented level for the post-war um, era. So that's our last 70 years. Now, all of that has to be repaid. The, the one positive thing, we've been able to say this for a while for Australia, the one positive thing is that uh, if you think it's bad here, it's a lot worse mm. most everywhere else. So but that's if, dangerous for us too. But that's, but that's a terrible way to think. And indeed, to, you know, uh, to um, be too gushing in my praise of you, but you were a member of the Howard government. And the Howard government did something that was uh, impressively counter sort of cultural, as it were, at the time, the way governments ran themselves in the 1990s, the 2000s, and certainly the way governments run themselves now, in that... Um, we had a record at the time, a record net debt when the Howard government came in, just under 20% of GDP. That's right. uh, now, by even then, by international standards, that was still quite low. It was you know, a third of the sorts of levels you saw in Europe, uh, you know, half or so of the sorts of levels you saw in the United States. So there was always a large um, crowd of people who were saying, we don't have anything to worry about, it's all fine. Now, thankfully, the Howard government didn't take that view, took some decisive actions in the, very, the first couple of budgets especially, but then ran 10 out of 11 budget surpluses and paid off all of our net debt. And the upshot of that was that when the global financial crisis struck in 2008, 2008-9, uh, Australia was in this enviable position that we had no net debt. So we were easily able to borrow money. And that's, that's a large part of what you make sure that you pay down your debt to do. It's a risk management thing. Yeah, for the just, next as, just as for a household, it's, it means so that you're ready, so that you have scope to borrow if you suddenly find you're hit by a shock, just like a household. You suddenly have big medical bills. You don't want to be massively in debt when that happens because you might not be able to borrow any money at all. And in the same way for, for countries. So again, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back with the idea that, oh, we're less badly off than these other countries. We're also in a more exposed position because we get a lot of our borrowing from overseas. And so we're more exposed if foreigners decide that actually they're not so inclined to lend to us. 
and then other aspects of our economic structure, for example, the fact that our economy has become so reliant on demand from China, I mean, it make, we're, we're particularly exposed in turn there, uh, lest you know, the Chinese start saying, oh, we're not going to take anything from Australia. You know, that might cause them some short-term damage, but the nature of an autocracy like, uh, like China is they're often prepared to take, do, take decisions that would be very damaging to them in the short term if they think it will achieve a major strategic benefit in the long run. And creating a situation where they thought they could bring Australia to heel, uh, you know, strategically and politically, they might well think that's worthwhile. So that's why we don't want to be running that high debt. But, but in answer to your original question, where's this money come from? It's all been borrowed and therefore it all has to be repaid. So there's, there's two aspects, I think, isn't there, in, in, in terms of this good economics being good for society, good for people. Uh, one is, as you say, if you've got shots in the locker, you've been prudent, when a shock comes along, you can cope with it. So Australia sailed through the great financial crisis in incredibly good shape because their public finances were good. That was a good outcome for people. They didn't lose their jobs. But another was, and no one talks about this very much, but one of the things we were trying to do in those years of coalition government was to, if you like, get the government out of the nation's savings pocket so that the private sector had that money to invest and to grow wealth and create jobs, which is exactly what happened. Yep. So for the first time, that budget discipline, for the first time in 25 years or so, you saw unemployment drop to something with a three in front of it. We didn't that's think we'd really, ever get there, but we did. Yeah, very, so very, very few people were out yeah. without a job. And real wage levels, in other words, yep. the way people lived, yep. improved very considerably yep. because we were not you know, compromising the private sector's ability to save and invest. And no one talks about that anymore. It's as though it's disappeared and doesn't apply anymore. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very worrying in general, the way in which all the conversation now focuses on what the government does and what the government should be doing. And the idea, indeed, um, this notion, which is sort of implicit in the idea that we, we run zero interest rates, indeed, we have the, the, the central bank financing the government. That's effectively a way of saying that you will have a form of stealth taxation whereby the government just takes a larger, the government becomes a larger share of the economy, becomes a larger share of spending in the economy. And that's bad, not merely because you have all this debt, it ultimately does have to be repaid and you're very exposed if you have a shock to interest rates. Uh, but it's also bad because it means the government, which is inherently a less productive, less mm. outcomes focused, uh, less innovative um, beast than the private sector made up ideally of lots and lots of individual entrepreneurs with all their great ideas. If you if you focus more and more of your, your, your activity in a, around government decisions rather than the, the decisions of those private agents, you will get less good outcomes. Uh, and so, yeah, again, it was a great achievement of the Howard government to get uh, a combination of budget surpluses and really strong jobs growth and really strong real wage growth. Because again, that's been a real problem for many other economies is to mm. achieve wage growth right through the, the wage, um, you know, the, the, you know, from high wage earners to low wage earners, from high income earners to low income earners. That's been one of the big problems in the United States, for example, that you've had, you've had decades where you had a situation where there was, was stagnant or even sometimes declining real wages among lower income, low, up to sort of middle income people who are therefore finding it increasingly difficult to cope. One of the great achievements of President Trump actually was to engineer a revival of what you might loosely term mainstream Main Street US economy, somewhat at the expense of the Wall Street financial sector US economy, uh, for what I thought, you know, better shorthand. Uh, and so you actually had the strongest real wage growth among low wage income earners that you'd had in many decades. Unfortunately, that's all gone by the board now. There's a very interesting aspect of that, again, that's missed. Um, and that is that President Trump really was the, pop, the product of great concern and disaffection in middle America because of those flatline wages over many years. Many of the policies being pursued by the people who were so against him exacerbate that very problem yes. yeah. and increase the risk of further turmoil and division and political mayhem in America. But we're not immune from that either. And, and can I come back to this question of inflation and, and, and too much inflation is a very bad thing. Too little inflation can be a problem. Governments have been looking for inflation to devalue their, the debts they've built up. Uh, they haven't been able to get it, so they've kept on pumping it. We've had asset explosions, but not real wages growth. Can you give us a bit of a, a layman's feel as to why a bit of inflation is a good thing, too much is a bad thing, and how we ought to handle that as the country going forward? Yeah. Well, I mean, in general, I don't 
I don't even want to say that I think a, you know, a bit of inflation is a good thing. If it's two to three percent, the idea is there's, there's some benefit in in getting you know, possibly a little bit of inflation because it allows possibly smooth some of the processes of of wage negotiation and so forth. Whereas if it's if your inflation rate is too low, or indeed it should in principle smooth the operation of monetary policy because it allows you to get what people term um, negative real interest rates. In other words, your borrowing costs actually sort of in a real sense are negative. Um, uh, because if you'll be able to raise your prices faster than at a rate higher than the uh, than the um, interest rate you're having to pay, then that means you can you might be encouraged to invest uh, more because you think I can easily easily recoup enough from my sales to be able to pay the interest. So, so there is a you know, that's why the Reserve Bank, you know, twenty some years ago, twenty five years ago, uh, decided to settle on a target rate for the interest rate and got the government's agreement. That's a little bit above zero, two to three percent. Mm. But, but in general, any form of high inflation, you're just you're just eroding the value of people's, you know, the value of their wages, uh, the, the value of their purchasing power. Uh, in general, as you say, high inflation has a great appeal to governments or indeed to anybody who's got in uh, a lot of debt because it devalues the, the value of that debt. You have high inflation as you did in the 1970s and the trouble is all the people who did the lending to you, they get paid back the same dollar amount, but the amount that will buy is vastly less. Uh, and so you know you get this nominal growth in the economy. Also, you get from that bracket creep, and the government's uh, tax take automatically rises a lot. And so all of those you get all of those benefits. But it's fundamentally a bad thing for consumers out there, for the average Australian. Now, um, in terms of the the uh, impact, how these things play out, when you've got such high debt, you may think you have to weather that for a little while. Uh, but the trouble is, again, we, we've got ourselves into an awful position. Uh, even more so in, in many countries like the United States, you know, they can say, well, maybe we should we should experience a little bit of inflation. You know, well, they've, they've got more than a little bit at the moment. They've got the highest inflation in several decades. It's running at five and a half percent at the moment, uh, which is very high. The uh, CPI and um, people are now. You know, the, the Federal Reserve um, happily assured everybody this is very temporary. That's what they were saying nine months ago, twelve months ago. Now they're saying uh, it's not temporary, but it won't stay for too long. It'll be there in 2022. Uh, but it'll go away then. The trouble is, again, as soon as you get high inflation for a period, it starts to get locked in because people adjust their wage demands because they start to say, my, the, the real power of my income is eroding fast. I need higher wages. You start getting into these cycles where then the higher wages force further incre increases in prices and it can become a spiral. Uh, and then that, the difficulty that creates is it creates all sorts of other problems that um, in high inflation environments, it's very, it becomes much harder for businesses to plan it's much harder for workers to to, realize, to make decisions about what are reasonable wages to ask for. It, it tends to be accompanied by big swings in relative prices, because you don't. If, if inflation is rising at five percent, it doesn't mean all goods are going up by five percent. Often it means some of these goods are going up by twenty five percent. These goods are going down by five, and it's so much more complicated to work in that sort of environment and to know whether you have a certain environment. That's why we spent so much effort uh, in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties in different countries in succession around the world, saying we finally have to have to get rid of the very high inflation that had developed around the world from the late 60s all through the 70s and in many countries through the 1980s. So, so inflation in and of itself can be very damaging to economy and also the way it interacts with the tax system can be very damaging to the economy and to jobs growth and so forth, the things that matter to, to real people. Uh, but the difficulty again with inflation is that it's very hard to get rid of once it started. And so in Australia's case, for example, we didn't get rid of our very high inflation that we had for several decades until we had the uh, recession of the early 1990s. And that, you know, many young people now have no idea what it's like to experience a really bad recession. Uh, that was a recession which went on for several years and where the unemployment rate got up over 11%. So you had and amongst young people who got to... You know, I, I, I can't remember the... It was ex very high. In the 30s, it was very uh, high. Extremely high youth unemployment. So, and, that, and, and over ex an extended period of years. So that's very damaging. Um, and that's why we, we want to avoid that. Uh, on the other hand, um, if you don't, you know, if you don't get rid of the inflation, it, it itself is damaging. Uh, so there, are, you, you end up finding yourself in a position where there are no good policy options, uh, and likewise, there are no good policy options with trying to imagine that you can just keep kicking the can down the road by constantly cutting interest rates, constantly saying we'll make borrowing even cheaper and even cheaper, either for governments or indeed for private sector individuals. That creates all of its own, you know, huge set of its own problems, including in particular massively rising house prices and uh, deepening inequality between different cohorts of the of the nation, both you know, demographically, between young and old, between those with assets and those without assets and so forth. Uh, so unfortunately, you, you get to a situation where sometimes um, there are no good options left.
I know that people sort of, uh, I've got to be careful how I put this because people write me say, it's all right for you, you've you know, done well and uh, you have assets. I do. I have a farmer and so forth. So in one sense, you see, rises in assets are nice for me. But I have a deep and genuine concern about the issue you just touched on. It really worries me. Yeah. The issues of equity, and, 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 and we talk a lot about equality yeah. in our society, but it, we're making it so tough for young people, yeah. flatlining wages and house prices that are just extraordinary. I think when I left school in the mid-70s, an average house cost around four times average annual earnings. It's now 11 or 12, and in Melbourne and Sydney, more like 13 or 14. Yeah, it's getting up in that order. I don't I confess I haven't seen the actual latest data, but as I say, the, the data that just recently came out from the Bureau of Statistics about house price increases, uh, you know, recent house price increases, you know, where you had a nine percent know, growth in house prices, seven percent growth in you know, the prices of units or houses, so dwellings, uh, in a single quarter. They, they went up by the price of a median house went up by fifty thousand dollars in one in three months. Yeah, uh, and you say that's that's has tremendous implications in terms of equity, even about the capacity to people to get into the housing market. After all, if you want to save a deposit of 20% to be able to borrow money from the bank to buy a house, not only are you then having to, every moment you wait longer, you're seeing the price rise faster and faster, but even to get that deposit. Yeah. When you're getting rises of that sort of way, you can't keep up with, with the requirements to get the deposit. You can't put the deposit together. And that in turn also has demographic effects. Like it's, it's Astonishing to me that there is not more discussion, especially as we have had a few intergenerational reports, the Commonwealth one and recently the New South Wales one, about what's happened to the birth rate in Australia, the total birth rate in particular, the total fertility rate. So Australia actually was one of few Western countries, indeed few countries across Asia and elsewhere, that had a total fertility rate up close to what's called the replacement rate. So the idea is the replacement rate is that you expect that women will have about 2.1 children on average. So that means, of course, some Women have three or four or more kids, others have none, but on average about that level is the amount where all other things equal, you would be able to keep, you know, maintain a stable population. And Australia hadn't had that, hasn't had that since the 1970s, but we weren't far below that. And that was partly a function of the confidence that people had in the economy. They were prepared to still decide to settle down, get married, start a family and so forth. Uh, but just in the recent, you know, indeed in the late latter period of the Howard government in the mid-2000s, it actually briefly ducked back up above two, so it almost got back to the replacement rate. Um, just in the last few years, that's plummeted. We're down to 1.65 yeah. as the fertility rate. Now, that's still a lot higher in countries like China. It's 1.3. Um, in quite a lot of Asian countries, it's down at that sort of order, 1.3, 1.4, in some countries even lower. But in other words, we've always been out of that, uh, out of that range. We're... We're, we've moved fast down towards that, and that has huge demographic implications in terms of the ageing of the population and so forth, uh, if you're looking 20, 30, 40 years down the track. Uh, now, A, it's surprising we don't have more discussion of that, but B, I can't help but wonder, is the fact that it's so difficult to get into the housing market something that may be causing people, not necessarily, they may still want to form a family, but if it takes, takes that much longer to be able to buy a house and settle down, and what's more, if you have an astronomical mortgage and you're thinking, I can't afford to have, we'd love to have three kids, but we can only afford to have two, or I'd love to have two kids, but we can only afford to have one. I suspect those sorts of issues are in people, the backs of many people's minds. It's a great irony to me that we should have to consider the cost of having children mm. um, as being perhaps prohibitive. Uh, right. yes. that's, a, that's a culture that's, yeah. I think, in quite dangerous waters. Yeah. But um, can we tease out again, you see, what happened after that high period of very high inflation and then the recession that we had to have, was that interest rates rose and rose and rose. And I know from the research that young people today contemplating a house are aghast at the idea that housing interest rates reached 16, 17%, over 20 for small businesses. And that's the result again of very bad policy. This is, this is why it's so important to tease these issues out so that voters can make informed decisions. So often we vote against our own interests. Oh, we want the government to give us that. We want the government to spend more on whatever. And it actually works against their interests, not for them. Yes. But what drove those horrendous interest rates? Aren't we in danger? This is what worries me about America's inflation starting to rise, I think, stubbornly, as you said, that we may re-enter that territory. Can you assure me that I'm wrong? I'd love you to no, assure no, me no. that I'm wrong. <laughs> I can't assure you that you're wrong. I don't think they would need to reach anything like 
those high levels of O2 already cause the same sort of yeah. terrible economic dislocation. Because of the leverage. That's Part, exactly. So, I mean, so many people at, and so many governments, so many corporations yeah. owe so much. Yes. So, so even in Australia's case, um, you know, our governments have borrowed less uh, as a share of their, size of their economy than many, than, certainly in fact, than most uh, developed economies. Nevertheless, that's already at a worrying level. But even more worrying is where household borrowing has got to. So um, back at the time in the late 1980s, when in response to this very high inflation, um, the Reserve Bank raised interest rates very high. Uh, in fact, they partly, partly there were mistakes made, but nevertheless, there was this notion we have to raise them to these extremely high levels. Um, back then, the household debt to, um, do, sorry, as debt as a share of disposable household income was about 50%. Now, you know, it's three to four times that as a share of disposable income. We know that we already have debt that's approaching basically twice, two, two years worth of disposable income debt levels on average, average across all households. So that includes some households that have no debt, they have their own house already, but there are other households, partly because they're having to borrow so much for, to buy a house, have these huge debt levels. So you wouldn't have to approach anything like 17% no, uh, before you got no. tremendous uh, yeah. misery. And, and house borrowers will yeah. tell you that. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll go white. I've seen the research yes. yeah. at the idea that if they rose one or two or three percent and yeah. what it would mean for them. Yeah. So this is, again, just to emphasise the point, it's really we need as a country, every one of us who votes, to think carefully about what we're voting for in our democracy. Um, and, and coming to bad thinking, which is to probably prejudice your answer to the next question, modern monetary theory. This idea seems to be that... Uh, uh, put forward the idea that budget deficits, national debts are not a bad thing. You don't have to worry about them uh, and so on and so forth. Governments can and should spend lavishly on public service. Uh, the state should just expand more and more and more and look after us cradle to grave. Where did modern monetary theory come from and, and how does it arise in a situation where in my day, one of the first things you did when you studied economics, as I understand it, was to learn some history. Yeah. Because there's almost nothing that hasn't been tried. Yes. And this sort of approach just seems to me to be a short road to disaster. But would you unpack modern monetary theory as you see it? Because a lot of people are talking about it, and it sounds very attractive, particularly to young people, worried about what their future might look like. I'm happy to do my best. I've always struggled with this partly because it is, it is to me such a ludicrous idea that it's difficult to take seriously. Yet one serious has to politicians now because, putting it up as a serious solution to our challenges. That's right. So the, the fundamental premise, so again, one should stress, this doesn't, it's not a theory that applies to all governments. It applies to governments with a printing press. <laughs> so the idea is, in other words, if you're the state government, you still have to worry because you don't get to print New South Wales dollars. But the idea is that the Australian government, the argument is the Australian government doesn't have any restrictions on how much it can spend. But this is just archaic thinking because if it needs more money, it can just print more money. And the truth is that in, in the short run, uh, there is some truth to that idea. Uh, however, the, the, the fundamental point, the reason why it's fundamentally not a sensible thing, is that no real value is created by printing yeah. more money. Now, the, the argument that its proponents will make is that nevertheless, this can be a useful thing because what you should focus on is whether there are un, underutilized or unutilized resources within the economy. So if you have a lot of unemployed people, the government should just borrow money to get those people working. And then you do actually get a real benefit. Uh, but of course, that has to work it out. There, there is no such thing as a free lunch. You can't, you can't just print money and get more value. So even in those circumstances, what you're effectively doing is redistributing across the, across the economy and um, amongst borrowers and savers and amongst different groups of people. Uh, in particular, for example, if you print enough money, well, the value of the Australian dollar has to go down uh, because people are not going to continue to say, oh, that's just invaluable you know, to something where we can print an infinite amount of it. So either the value of the Australian dollar goes down or you get redistrib redistribution working within the economy. So to me, the right way to think about modern monetary theory is it's effectively a disguised form of taxation. What you're doing is you're saying the government will come in, it'll just borrow this money by effectively printing it, and then start directing all sorts of things around the economy so as to take these underutilised resources and so forth and direct them into productive outcomes. Now, this is the sort of thing, again, to be, try to be fair to this theory, this sort of thing that has been done by governments as a very short-term thing in response to major sudden economic shocks. So if you have a massive economic downturn, there has been the idea that the government will spend up, uh, go into, go into um, deficit, because the idea is you can get 
feedback effects from loss of confidence. So the idea yes. is if you if you get everybody panicking that the economy is about to contract and they pull back their own spending and that causes other people to lose their jobs and then they stop spending and you can get these cascades. So governments act as a stabiliser. As a stabiliser. So if you step in briefly, yeah. and ideally you do it by borrowing money as the discipline, borrowing actual money mm. from other people and then you have to repay it, there's nothing in principle wrong with that. But to morph that into the idea that you should then be able to just print as much money as you like and do this at any time, effectively you're just handing massive additional amounts of control to, to federal, in this case, federal bureaucrats and federal politicians. They will start making decisions for the economy. They will just become, federal spending will just become a much bigger share of the economy with much with central bureaucrats making dictating where that money is to be spent and where it's to go. You're effectively um, just, just uh, 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 advocating for a massive increase in the size of government. And governments are notoriously bad. So history establishes governments are notoriously bad at directing economies. They don't remotely have the information capacity to understand all of the implications of the things they do. Even very basic government decisions have all sorts of knock-on implications that are not understood uh, at the time and only become apparent later. And so the idea that we should adopt this as a sort of general modus operandi is, is bound to be disastrous in my view. Uh, it's, you know, it's simply... Um, it, it, Again, it strikes me as it's so typical, unfortunately, I think, of the modern age, and here am I displaying my age, but so much it's a branding exercise. If you'd, if you'd come to the party here and you'd said, we have this great idea, we should just have really high taxes and take all that money and have the government distribute it wherever it's best needed, because they can identify where there are places where people are underutilised or you know, um, resources are underutilised, everybody would be very sceptical. But you call it modern monetary theory, and everybody, oh, it's modern, is it? Oh, that sounds great. Actually, this sounds really good and it's costless. It's apparently it's costless in the short term, where you can't easily see the costs because they're all born in the, in the sort of difficult to disentangle feedbacks that occur in the economy. Uh, then suddenly people are prepared to take it on for a while until it all ends in disaster. And, and it will, in my view, end in disaster because no government that's ever decided that it can just get by by running the printing presses harder has ever come to anything good. It's, you know, I, you know, there have been a few recent examples and a few in history, go back to Weimar Germany or more recently Zimbabwe, where you've had massive, you know, trillion, trillion percent inflation. Uh, but even without that, you don't have to even get to that extreme to have really bad economic outcomes from that sort of thinking. Can we return to um, the issue of, of COVID and governments taking on this theme of them taking on expanding yeah. roles in our society, both financial and, uh, if you like, uh, social? control. It seems to me to be very important. I, I have a concern that instinctively I think the Australian people, if given a good solid array of information, will make wise choices. Uh, and I actually think they got to the view before the politicians did that these lockdowns were over the top. And I think that's showing in the polling and you're seeing governments back off now um, because we've been very, especially in Victoria, very lockdown happy. Um, I'd be interested in your views on the fact that what we had was endless focusing on health, and I'm not denying it was a major health issue and is, and may not be over. But in order to make informed decisions about the right response, what the people have not had is a proper feeding of information about the economic costs and who bears them. Because yeah. overwhelmingly, it's the next yeah. generation. I would say in many ways, we paid for COVID with our children's money which is already short for them. And more than that, we've not taken into account other social factors like mental health and educational outcomes. So the Australian people have had to, if you like, accept a fairly narrow broadband uh, or, or, or sort of um, uh, set of uh, instructions on this because there hasn't been a balanced explaining of the various factors that need to be taken into account. I, I, I couldn't agree more strongly. And I, I'd say, to come back to the point you're getting to at the end there, that it wasn't just that there are all these other social implications of lockdowns. Even just on the health front, there have been massive implications of having lockdowns and the changed priorities. And indeed, in very early stages, fortunately, this was backed off. But the idea of stopping lots of elective surgeries, you know, frightening yeah. people so much they didn't go to the doctor as much possibly to get a diagnosis of that, you know, an early diagnosis of that bad condition that's coming down the track to them. So, uh, or indeed, any, any focus on the mental health um, implications, which I think 
may prove to be huge, um, uh, particularly for young people, cut off so much from the sorts of things they would normally be doing. Essentially, we took a monomaniacal view that all that mattered was the COVID statistics. What's more, we did this as with governments without providing any metrics for what we should think of as good or bad. So again, if you go back to March, April 2020, one of the things that I was you know, desperately keen that governments do is at least say, how many cases is a bad or intolerable number of cases? If the argument was we have to do something to stop the hospitals being overwhelmed, I can see that argument. Mm. But then give us some sense of what's bad. And because we didn't do that, you saw this weird situation in May, you know, May June 2020, where case numbers kept falling and falling, but the um, rhetoric in favour of, of um, you know, having to you know, continue these, you know, what I think was very draconian measures, uh, kept ramping up because we hadn't set, set any metrics. And so we, we have had, in my view, a massive overreaction, a massive overreaction, a very ill-targeted reaction. We should have been identifying who are the at-risk groups, people with one or more, especially multiple comorbidities, because it's those groups overwhelmingly, and especially the elderly with multiple comorbidities, who are particularly at risk here. For large swathes of the population, I will say something that's deeply unpopular and you know, it would get me banned if I put this on Facebook or Twitter, because all of our conversation about this is now censored by private censors, whom we don't even know, you know we have no control over and we don't know the, the discussion in the public square. But I'll say bluntly, for large swathes of the population, this is not more bad, uh, indeed for many it's less bad than the flu. Now that's not to downplay its significance as a health issue, because if you have those comorbidities, you know, a major cardiac issue, a major, especially a major respiratory issue, particularly for the elderly, it's a lot worse than the flu. But so we should have been focusing on who are the at-risk populations and how do we help them and assist them and ensure, try to you know, ensure their safety without shutting down everything else. And we could, in my view, have done that for a tiny fraction of the total cost that we have spent, which will now be borne by future generations that will be borne by them in a, in a cost sense, but also in a health sense. After all, if we've spent $600 billion uh, at the state and federal level so far, that's going to be umpteen billion dollars a year less that will be spent on our public hospital systems for decades into the future while we're repaying that debt, because eventually we'll have to repay that debt. And so that's going to be all sorts of things that don't go on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, all sorts of things that don't get covered um, by you know, Medicare, um, you know, arrangements or that aren't covered by you know, that you know eight cases with a public hospital system is not expanded to cover these things because they don't have the money because we chose to spend it all in 18 months on uh, on this particular virus and i think it was a massive overreaction uh, the virus of course emanated in china and to return to our theme today which is what is the economic outlook for australians uh, who have asked me to talk about this uh, what, what what can we say to them China itself faces enormous challenges, as Neil Ferguson outlined in a recent talk I did with him. Not least of them all, massive debts in their corporate world and in their public sector. Not that it's hard to disaggregate the two, but we worry about Australia with a debt to GDP of 40%. China's is probably a couple of hundred plus, we're told. And they've uh, we don't know really what how covid played out we don't even know when it really started in china how it's played out what impact it's had but what are your thoughts on on china going forward i mean that's a very big and broad question i know but uh economically how do you see them coming out of this and what do you think the impact of that will be it's obvious that there are some real stresses in the chinese economy there are i mean when, when you talk about a few hundred percent i suspect that's combined because so much in China, there is no dividing line yeah, between them. As yeah. things are increasingly blurred in Australia between the corporate sector and the government sector, at least they're not blurred in, in the finances of those two groups. But um, but in China, they're, they're, they're much more blurred again. And so in particular there, you have large, lots of large corporations, especially lots of large land development corporations. So you have the whole Evergrande crisis that's going on at the moment of this you know, property developer with $300 billion worth of US dollars worth of debts that has you know, recently defaulted on some interest payments. Uh, and then a number of other um, uh, land developers who then in turn defaulted on interest payments and we're waiting to see how that will all play out. The Chinese government is trying to reassure everyone that you know, they'll bang heads together and get it all sorted out. But it is an indication that, that there are very major imbalances in the Chinese economy, in part because they've done a similar thing in a different way, but a grander way to what we have done, which they, every time there's been a downturn, 
for fear that it might spark unrest, they've thrown enormous amounts of money at it. Uh, and then the upshot is that you've got you know, um, a whole lot of ill-directed investment. And I'm sure you know, Ferguson was, was probably talking a lot about the way that you, you know, mm. as you often get in centrally planned, you know, still yeah. heavily centrally influenced economies, a lot of ill-directed empty cities. empty cities, that shows the archetypal example. Now, that said, I think the Chinese are a tremendously entrepreneurial people. Uh, one of the biggest stresses in terms of their economy and their society, however, is going to be that, as, as we're seeing now, the more genuine freedom of any sort that you give, and there hasn't been much given to the Chinese people, but the more genuine freedom you give, the better economic outcomes you've got. But the more the Chinese Communist Party started to get worried that people were getting a taste for freedom and were getting um, increasingly unhappy about the restraints on them, the upshot is that now the Chinese government is in a full-blown um, sort of pushback against the corporate sector, uh, in particular many tech giants, large businesses, to make very clear that you know, that there is only one source of power and authority in China, and that's the Chinese Communist Party, and that any corporate will do as they're told. Uh, now, that itself will also have major economic implications. How that all plays out, I don't know. I think it would have been a much more difficult road for the Chinese to navigate did you not, had you not had what happened, you know, that had you had a US president who was standing up for US interests as you did, particularly in relation to China in President Trump, we don't have that anymore. Uh, and I fear, unfortunately, that you might in return have a situation where the Chinese, after all, again, a key point about China is that because it is, what happens is what the, the Central Committee of the Communist Party says happens. It's not, there are no democratic processes there. China itself is, an, is a country where they're prepared to cop big economic costs in the short term if they think it will achieve them a strategic advantage in the long term. So we're in a situation where um, I fear the weakness of so many Western governments may mean that China makes some, you know, take, does some aggressive things, both economically and strategically. Uh, and they may say, we don't care if that's going to cause a, a big economic shock or indeed a big economic shock within China. We think we'll be able to weather it. And if we manage to flex enough muscle, we think there are enough cowards in Western governments that they'll come to heel and they'll, everything will be forgotten after all. Everything was forgotten after the Tiananmen Square massacres. You know, within a few years, you had countries lining up to give money you know, to invest in China and so forth. So the, the Chinese might well think that, um, that they don't care so much necessarily if there are some bad short-term economic implications. I'd be interested in your views. I mean, you're uh, you know, a very respected economist. So you'll understand business leaders who say, look, our trade with China is absolutely vital. We can't put it at risk. Stop antagonizing the Chinese as though it's our fault. Uh, I don't believe we've changed our attitudes and practices at all. I think they have. But nonetheless, you do hear that quite commonly. You hear a little less of it now, particularly because we know the Australian people and both sides of politics uh, disagree with that view. They value freedom, I think, more than they do, I hope they do. finances. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you all, you know, as a patriotic Australian who believes in freedom, how do you see that balance working out? It's, it's quite an issue in, in the eyes of a lot of people who trade a lot with China, including farming groups. It is, it is very difficult, and I especially feel for farming groups. I feel less for many other businesses that have enmeshed themselves with China. Um, in fact, for many of those other business groups, particularly many US business groups that have enmeshed themselves with China, I feel no sympathy whatsoever um, because many of them have done so to take advantage of what is effectively or actually slave labor in China. Uh, and indeed, it is one of the most horrifying aspects of recent years to see the degree to which business leaders have been prepared to brush off the horrific treatment of the Uyghur people, for example, from Xinjiang province in far western China as though, well, whatever, who cares? We get cheap shoes or something out of it, so what are you complaining about? Um, so, so there are lots of business groups where I have no sympathy at all um, if they suffer from having enmeshed themselves so closely with tyrants and despots. Um, there are other groups, as you say, like farmers, where it's going to be very difficult. That's why I don't advocate the idea that we need to disentangle ourselves sort of like that overnight. I mean, let's just stop trading. But, but I am on what I suspect is one extreme of this debate, that I have firmly come to the view that it is necessary to, more, necessary to more or less completely disentangle ourselves from China over the next five to 10 years. And that's going to be a huge shock to the Australian economy, in particular because we get so much of our export income from exporting especially iron ore, now once again briefly coal, though again, we, we, we discovered how exposed we were uh, when we suddenly discovered that the Chinese at a whim will just cut off Australian coal supplies because we've done things they don't like. To me, that was a clear demonstration of the point that it is not possible for Australia to remain a free and sovereign nation 
when dealing, when closely dealing, or become when we've made ourselves so economically reliant on a country like China, it's possible to become that enmeshed, though not ideal, but with a country like America or with countries in Europe that have a democratic tradition, but it's not possible to do that with a country like China. So I'm of the view that we need to disentangle ourselves. That means ideally you do that in an orderly fashion, meaning you try to find other markets. And for example, even with iron ore, it is the case that if we start exporting less to China, in particular if we can do it in concert with Brazil, steel has to be still made. So actually what you find is that the steel industry will, will regrow elsewhere around the world and we'll do our exports to them and it'll be a bumpy and difficult process. But it won't be as if we just completely lose that export market altogether. Um, nevertheless, as I say, it will be a painful thing to do. But the, the truth is the writing is now on the wall. China is not going to change. China has been relying on the idea that Western countries change to accommodate China's despotism. And so if we wish to remain free and sovereign, we have to disentangle ourselves from them. That would be difficult in the short run for farmers and for, and for um, our miners, particularly. And I'm all in favour of the idea that then we try to, you know, this is an instance where I'm happy for the idea that there'd be transitional assistance and support to help groups find new markets and also to assist them through that, that difficult period. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We, we have to do it, in my view. One of the things that strikes me as very dangerous is the idea that poor policy from the Western democracies may, over coming years, reduce the price of fossil fuels as we move to more expensive renewables. Those fossil fuels advantage the Chinese and other countries that are not really deeply committed uh, to the same climate objectives as the West, they then use those cheaper fuels to manufacture renewables, which we pay a lot of money for. The net effect of that, if, if policy is poorly implemented and carried forward, may very well be the supreme irony. Western economies become weaker uh, and poorer authoritarian regimes become richer and more powerful and in the crowning absurdity of it all emissions increase globally over what they otherwise might have done do you think this has been clearly thought through i i don't think it's been clearly thought through at all i think this has entirely become a an almost cult-like issue um, so uh, let me um, confess at the outset but I am someone who believes that this is an entirely fabricated crisis. There is no crisis with the climate. There is no evidence, even particularly for any sort of worrying level of anthropogenic global warming. The idea that um, we have some urgent need to be doing something here and throwing tens of billions of dollars the way of large companies, uh, always now, um, to provide subsidies for all sorts of renewable technologies and so forth is entirely absurd. But I, but I understand other people may have different views about that, and I, I'd be very happy to talk about the science of that, but let's leave that aside. The really astonishing thing about this whole debate is that the supposed solutions proposed do not in any way address the issue. So even if you believe that climate change was this existential crisis that we needed to address, then if your concern is, your concern has to be about global emissions. It makes no sense if you do things, as Australia has been doing now for decades, and as we are apparently planning to ramp up, where you say, we will stop producing something in Australia so as to reduce our own emissions, but we won't stop consuming it. What we'll do is we'll ship the production of it offshore, typically to a place like China, with much less strict emissions controls and other environmental controls, where it will be produced, almost certainly producing actually more emissions that you care, supposedly care about, rather than less, and then we'll transport it all the way back to Australia. So, for example, I would believe that people were serious about this. Well, there are all sorts of things I point out here. I believe the people who say this is an existential crisis were serious about it. If, for example, first of all, they practice what they preach. Most of the people assiduously preaching this are the people who fly off to climate change conferences in their private jets. And it's not an idle throwaway line to say, you plainly don't care. You plainly, this is for you, you don't actually believe in what you're saying. I care more what people do than what they say. I'll determine what they actually think from what they do, not what they say. But even leaving that aside, you say if you cared about global emissions, then, you, then that sort of proposal would make no sense. We shouldn't be focused on the production of emissions in each country. We would focus on each country's contribution to global emissions as embodied in their consumption and investment. 
This is a really important point, isn't it? That yeah. The current accounting models yeah. Yeah. may actually be seen by history yeah. to have made the problem worse. Worse. And they, and they may... if, if you accept yeah. there's a problem. I, I believe that we are wise to, if you like, adopt the precautionary principle, but more than that, just to put my own position yeah. on, the record, on, the, on the record, I'm all for exploring and developing new technologies. What I'm against is poorly thought out policy, which cripples economies, costs jobs, sets wealthy against poor, yeah. Yeah. within countries and between, between countries, countries. Uh, and, and results in potentially, you know, really quite terrible environmental outcomes at every level. Yeah. Well, and, and I should say also, by the way, so I, I'm all in favour of more exploration of the technology. And if someone can come up with great renewable energy technology, especially what's needed is battery technology, because the issue always has been the storage of the energy, not the production of it. If you can come up with that, then I say, giddy up. I, I, I don't have a vested interest in the idea, for example, that we need to have a coal industry and we should, you know, we, we must have coal miners and whatever. If some technology comes along that legitimately in an economic sense supplants that, then over time, if you get that economic change, that's the way economies evolve. But I hate the idea of seeing coal miners put out of jobs because it's become the cultural whim of inner city elites who have so much greater control over the political process. But let's, let's sort of wind up because, you, again, you've done so much thinking on how we get better outcomes for Australians who, ironically, in this wealthy country where we hear that we're so well off, and you know, we are, we should not be unrealistic about this, but there are many Australians, you know, who are really finding their budgets are stretched and the cost of living is enormous. It's very easy to vote for the politicians who promise you more, but in fact, as we've discussed, you know, ever-expanding government tends to drive employment and wages down, That's and, and, and real living standards down. In shorthand, with an election coming up, what sort of policies does Australia need to move forward now? Well, the biggest thing in my view is that you need a, a full-throated uh, effort to um, expand freedom fundamentally, in particular expand opportunity for business creation, job creation at a small and medium level. So I, this is something where I focus on my concerns about the social developments, particularly the concentration of power in big business and, and big government and so forth. Combine that with the effects of the pandemic, which have been you know, uniquely you know, felt strongly by um, particularly the self-employed, by individuals you know, you know, out in society um, who have, you know, have found their options severely curtailed, their income severely stretched, but especially small businesses. Um, you know, even if you survived on the government handouts, you, your entire business model has been upturned. You have no certainty. Um, you don't know when from one moment to the next the government may shut, shut the business down again or severely restrict it. We've watched as big businesses haven't been subjected to nearly the same degree of constraint as you have. And the problem with that is that then um, that means it's, it's, that's going to be, it'll be very difficult to persuade people to, to be entrepreneurial, to set up a small business, to go out and employ people, um, given what they've experienced uh, in the recent past. So to turn that around and try to have an optimistic uh, focus, I'd say that the core difficulty we face in Australia, as you say, first of all, we should accept we've, we're nevertheless a lot better off than most other countries, so let's, let's be grateful for that. But a key focus has to be to try to empower small and medium businesses and individuals to pursue the goals they want, including their, their economic goals. At the same time, we have this massive debt. So how do you, um, you know, that we build up, how do you start repaying the debt while improving things like that? Well, one concrete example of the sorts of things I think governments could do that would be very positive, but that might, it might shock people to hear me as I suppose free marketeers say this, I would make major changes to corporate tax. Uh, I propose them for the next election. I would support a party that did this, which involved going much further in the differentiation between the corporate tax rate that applies to large businesses versus small and medium-sized businesses. So the current government, starting with the Abbott government and pursued, expanded further subsequently, has, has introduced a small wedge in the corporate tax rate so that small businesses pay a 25% rate now and larger businesses pay a 30% rate. You know, we, the intention was you started off at 30%, the small business rate has come down, uh, but we didn't get that reduction for large businesses. I would propose now slashing the small business corporate tax rate with corresponding changes to the um, arrangements for unincorporated businesses to, let's say, 15%, a really big cut. Let's, let's take another 10 percentage points off it. And let's more than pay for that, however, 
by increasing the, the, the tax rate for large businesses to 35%. Now, if you work out the arithmetic, that would actually cons produce a considerable amount of revenue and there would be immense howling from the Business Council of Australia and from large businesses. I don't care actually at this point because I've seen the way large businesses thinks about large business thinks about me. And I'm not inclined to be that concerned. I, 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 that sounds a little flippant. So I should say I am concerned in one sense in that I don't I would I would phase that in over a couple of years to give some time for adjustment. And I don't want to cause wholesale changes for large businesses that cause disruption in the economy. But I think there would be a lot of gnashing of teeth by large businesses, but they would cope perfectly fine. And in any case, anything that promotes the um, development of more competition to those large businesses by making it easier for small and medium-sized businesses to grow and indeed then to become large businesses, the more we do that, the better. That's really important both for the economy and to give, if we're going to restart an entrepreneurial economy, we need to do some decisive things that give people the thought that, you know, I've seen so many reasons why I wouldn't want to start a small business, but maybe this is a reason why I'm going to change my mind and I still will. That's the sort of thing you could do there. And so, as I say, I would try to think about ways in which you have to try to address the debt, but you also have to try to make it a positive, you have to try to do things that will really change the thought processes of people who are battered after what's happened over the last 18 months in the, you know, amongst small businesses, self-employed, contractors, etc. You need to give them some reason for optimism. And that's the sort of thinking that I would um, pursue. There are lots of other things one can do, but that's an example of the sort of thing. Well, Andrew, you've given us a great deal to think about. And it comes from someone with a great heart for Australia and a great knowledge of economics uh, and a powerful mind. So I can only thank you very much indeed. And uh, uh, I'll be interested to uh, hear people's reactions, negative yeah, and positive. Yeah, that's right. no, thank you, John. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.